on. I'm on three seats. <laughs> Look, there goes the game. You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Skylar Eagle, and thanks for joining us. Tonight, we hear Ithaca College community members share their thoughts on the school's cuts. Together, they have not honored our professors and our faculty and staff. Explore the status of assisted housing in Ithaca. So they didn't have available units like they would have in past Another way to add mindfulness to your life. To be aware of the energy that's inside of you and all around you. And a preview for our brand new show. About this. On the show, I'll be sitting down and speaking with writers, journalists, and experts about cultural events and stories. But up first, let's hear what's going on in the Ithaca area with our community beat. Ithaca College announced on Wednesday they will be moving forward with the changes outlined in the shape of the college document. In this plan, over 100 full-time faculty will be cut, as well as three departments and 17 graduate degree programs. This plan has faced lots of backlash through the school year, with protests on campus and groups like IC Alumni Against Austerity. Ithaca College students held a candlelight vigil that night to honor the faculty whose positions are being eliminated. The City of Ithaca and Tompkins County has revealed the draft report on the process to reimagine public safety. This follows the publication of a GQ article where Ithaca Mayor Savante Myrick outlined a plan to, in his words, abolish the city's current police department and change over to a reimagined city agency. Myrick has released a statement apologizing for the timing of the GQ article outlining the reform package because it was released before locals had been informed of the plan. However, Myrick is standing behind the package fully despite a lukewarm response from other city officials. Tompkins County has set up a vaccine registry for any currently eligible individuals. In this, people currently eligible can submit their information and the health department will communicate with them when doses are available. Currently, people in Tompkins County phases 1A and 1B are eligible to be vaccinated, though a larger group is eligible in state-run sites. People can submit their information on the Tompkins County website or by calling 877-211-8867 or 211. The Tompkins County Health Department announces the latest public exposures of COVID-19. An individual who tested positive worked two shifts at Chili's on South Meadow Street twice, once on Friday, February 19th from 10.45 a.m. to 9 p.m. and another time of Saturday, February 20th from noon to 9.30 p.m. The health department advises customers of the Chili's during those times to follow the guidance listed on the county's public exposure page. The city of Ithaca has suspended its enforcement of the odd-even parking restrictions. The rule had cars park on the side of the road with odd addresses on odd-numbered days and even addresses on even-numbered days from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. 
The weather has warmed up considerably in the area recently, but a snowy weather change before April could lead the city to enforce this rule again. Anyone wanting to receive updates on this rule can text SWIFT911 or 99538 or sign up on mp.swiftreach.com. Tompkins County Area Transit announces a new feature will be added to their services. That feature is free Wi-Fi. All but 10 TCAT buses now have Wi-Fi capability for those with smart mobile devices. Those remaining 10 buses are soon to be replaced, and all new additions to the agency will be equipped with Wi-Fi that could make your commute just a little bit better. For Michael Memis, I'm Bridget Bright, WICB News. Despite heavy backlash, Ithaca College held to its plan to cut more than 100 faculty positions in the coming years. After the announcement confirming this, students and faculty gathered on the campus to express sadness, disappointment, and other reactions to the school's decision in a student-run vigil. Correspondent Clayton Davis went to hear their thoughts. Early Wednesday morning, Ithaca College President Shirley Collado announced the Board of Trustees' final decision regarding the shape of the college recommendations made by the college's Academic Program Prioritization Implementation Committee. This plan will result in the cutting of 116 full-time equivalency faculty members as well as the discontinuation of 26 departments, programs, and majors. The administration says this is to align the size of the faculty to the size of IC student body as a part of their five-year strategic plan titled Ithaca Forever, and it will be implemented over the next three academic years. However, after announcing these cuts, many students, alumni, and faculty have been outspoken about the lack of transparency regarding the issue, disdain for the cutting of faculty and programs, that the personnel cuts largely avoid non-faculty positions such as administration, and the inconsiderate nature of letting people go during the pandemic. In response, members of the anti-austerity coalition IC Open the Books held a candlelight vigil last Wednesday to honor those who dedicated their time to higher education at the school. It was held outside the Ithaca College Library, and dozens of students gathered together. One of the lead organizers, Lauren Miller, planned the event last minute. They have not given us a space to be together. They have not honored our professors and our faculty and staff in the way that they need to be. And it was missing, so we created it. Allowing for an open space to feel any emotion. One of the speakers included senior Chris Griswold, who stated that speaking out against the proposed plan isn't necessarily about the faculty cuts. It's about our personal connections with these people, you know. It's about the experiences that we've had with them. But it's also about this institution not caring about labor's rights, you know, about workers' rights. You know, the, a large number of the people who are being cut and a large number of the people who won't be here anymore, mm -hmm. it's not our tenured and tenure-track faculty who are important but have strong job security, you know? It's about our contingent faculty union. It's about our part-time faculty who don't have job security here at this institution. And the, the school is saying that they don't care about those contingent and part-time workers because they're actively dismantling the system that can protect these people by collectively organizing with each other. It's not just about who we know individually. That's important, but it's not just about who we know individually. Besides students, there were members of faculty demonstrating their concerns at the protests. 
John Berger, a member of the Contingency Faculty Union, says he was heartbroken to see many of his colleagues let go. Everyone in the committee has been told they don't have a job. And many of those people, you know, they're teaching classes and they've had full classes. They even have waiting lists in their classes. They're well regarded. The students really like them, but they don't have a job. So they're being so told this is an austerity measure, but actually contingent faculty make like a, a quarter or a third of what the, and compared to what the administration makes, and they don't tell us what they make, you know, they make 10, 10 times more than you so, but anyway, you know, that aside, we're a great deal. You know what I mean? And we do as much, the students don't know that we're not, that we're contingent and not tenure, you know, tenure for life, you know? Because we teach just as well and with much passion, maybe more, you know, than, than anybody else does, you know? So anyway, every, all of my friends, that's one of the reasons I'm here. Every single one of them has been told, we don't have a job next semester, you know? And we, and we get many stories all the time from people in our union saying, you know, I've been here for 10, 15 years and they're telling me I don't have a job. At the rally, Berger brought posters for students to voice their concerns and let out any emotion that they might have. He even started chants for students to rally behind. Towards the end of the rally, Chris and Lauren read off the names of each of the faculty members to both applause and utter shock. The faculty members' years working for the school ranged from 28 years to just six months. Even with the disappointment of many faculty members cut, Miller says that the fight isn't over. We are talking to alumni about legal action. We have a ton, a ton of resources that are going into this. So just because they have approved the final recommendation, it's not final. We're still going to fight it. <laughs> We're still going to be advocating for people because we have faith in this institution. It's more than just bureaucracy. This is our institution. This is our home. It's our college. It's our community. And we have faith in it. For more reporting about the cuts at IC, listen to our recent interview with Alexis Menor, news editor of the Ithacan, Ithaca College's newspaper on our website, and find more on the Ithacan's website, theithacan.org. Clayton Davis, WICB News. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Skylar Eagle. Housing struggles have been a story time and time again in the pandemic. From people losing their jobs to eviction moratoriums, many people are in very different situations because of the pandemic. WICB correspondent Christian Maitre spoke to Ithaca Housing Authority to see what's being done in the area to help. Section 8 housing is a resource intended to help people struggling with financial insecurity get affordable housing funded by the federal government. Ithaca Housing Authority provides affordable housing for just over 1,000 Tompkins County residents. They receive funding from the federal government for what's called vouchers, which are a set amount of money given to recipients of the Section 8 program by the Housing Authority to pay their rent. I'm Christian Maitre with WICB, and I'll be discussing how Ithaca Housing Authority's Section 8 program has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and how their program is adapting to these unprecedented times. During the pandemic in April of 2020, unemployment rates in Tompkins County rose to 10.2% compared to 3.2% pre-pandemic in April of 2019, leading many in the area faced with financial insecurity. I think right when COVID hit, and unfortunately a lot of people were 
losing their job, the wait list grew even more. We've always had a very big wait list. Our current wait list is one to three years, depending on vouchers um, and available funding. So since COVID, there has been an increased need. There hasn't been increased funding in regards to that, but we are, you know, trying to lease up and help as many people from the wait list as possible. That's Megan Wickey, the Section 8 Housing Coordinator for Ithaca Housing Authority. She says despite an increase in demand for Section 8 housing, the organization has received no additional funds from the federal government to put towards housing vouchers. This means that the organization couldn't place any more people in need with housing than they normally could have before the pandemic. But Brenda Westfall, the organization's executive director, said, There was CARES Act funding that allowed us to provide for if staff needed to work overtime or to provide for covering the administrative function of the program so that we kept the business open. So they worked with what they had. We were paying a lot more housing assistance out to landlords than we paid prior to COVID because families were losing income. So that means the housing authority was paying more. So some of the CARES Act money helped in paying the higher half payments to the landlords. Ithaca Housing Authority also made exceptions to some of their policies. Ithaca Housing Authority did the best they could, COVID still caused challenges for participants in the Section 8 program. People were not relocating and moving around as much as we would normally see them, so they were staying put. We were hearing from landlords that they may have units, but they have tenants in those units, and because of the eviction moratorium, the tenants weren't leaving, so they didn't have available units like they would have in past years. So I think that there was some frustration level, you know, going on, especially with the, the landlord who possibly didn't have a tenant that had a Section 8 subsidy. We always have the concern that there could possibly be families out there that are behind in their rent, thinking that there will be funding available to them at the end of COVID, and we are not hearing that to be a true statement. So that is definitely one of the concerns that we have had of COVID and through COVID is that, you know, when we are at the end of COVID and landlords are able to evict. Although there. Doors may be closed to the public. We assisted and put new families on the program during a major pandemic. We did have to learn how to, to work differently, but we never missed the beat. Reporting for WICB, I'm Christian Matry. All music was found on the Blue Dot Sessions website. Last week, we looked at how Mindful IC is continuing to teach people on campus and in the community how to bring the concept of mindfulness into their daily lives. This week, correspondent Jordan Broking took a look at another way local people are making themselves more aware of their mind and body. During this last year, people have been searching for something calming, something relaxing that will help them keep their sanity for just a moment or longer period of time like painting or doing yoga. One mindful practice that is starting to grow in prominence in the Ithaca area thanks to a local movement is called Qigong. Qigong, like yoga, 
involves performing different body movements while also centering your attention on parts of the body, like your feet or the top of your head. Qigong really means to sort of, um, to be aware of the energy that's inside of you and all around you and to sort of work with it with intention and attention. Qi is our vital life force, whatever that is. It's what kind of makes everything alive. So gong means to sort of work with or, or like cultivate. That's Ann Stork. She's a professor in the Department of Environmental Studies at Ithaca College. She began teaching Qigong courses in May of 2019. Since then, the classes have gained momentum over the course of the pandemic and the return of college students to campus. I spoke to Anne about how she adjusted her classes during the pandemic and why mindfulness is important for the student body. Anne began teaching Qigong courses nearly two years ago during the college's Mindfulness in May program. Prior to that, she did many Qigong breaks in the middle for three hour laps with her classes. I would just give students a little taste. We do some sort of like middle class, I'd say, stand up, and there'd be 45 students, and they'd be like, what? And they'd push their chairs aside and stand up, and we'd do some sort of couple minute, some sort of Qigong movement. And, um, and students were noticing they felt better. Following the Mindfulness MA program, Anne reached out to her students, asking if they would be interested in doing more Qigong activities. Immediately, students like one student wrote back within 30 seconds and said absolutely so i approached the head of the chapel and said i would love to teach qigong in the chapel and he said well funny you should ask but we have a mindfulness series and we've got meditation monday wednesday and friday and yoga on tuesday and you could be qigong on thursday her classes met during the noon hour every thursday during the fall of 2019. she said more people began to come as more students invited their friends, along with people who would casually hang out in the chapel. But then the pandemic hit. One of the students in the class emailed me and said, would you do it um, through Zoom? It's like, of course. So I've been doing it every Thursday at 12.15 since that October, and then just picked it up on Zoom. But then come June, when the governor said you could meet in small groups outside, I put out some feelers and um, actually the same student that asked me to teach Qigong online showed up. She was in town. She had graduated, but she had an uh, internship with uh, state parks and then she brought a friend, etc. So been meeting in person for social distance Qigong with IC students and IC alums and their friends almost every week since then. Anne believes that while we fuss about transitioning to being online, teaching her classes over Zoom has opened up opportunities. I have a, a student that meets me every week and she's in Germany. And then one class period, uh, my cousin, who kind of a long lost cousin, not someone that I knew very well, I just happened to put her on my very first email list that this was happening and she's missed very few Qigong classes with me, but she was visiting in Alaska. So we had Alaska, Ithaca, and Germany all together, practicing together. Anne also thinks that there's more that meets the eye with connecting with each other online. Qigong is body, mind, and spirit. And I think you can connect to others' spirit online. 
as I can see in your face that others can't see. And I can see you touch your heart because that's where you're feeling it in your body. And since you just did that, it's reverberating and my body's getting goosebumps. So I think having this technology is a real gift to us. And so it's been a gift to me to be able to teach online. A year ago, Anne was part of a group called the Ithaca Morning Movement that did different movement practices such as Jigong. While everyone else stopped participating, she has continued it on her own YouTube page, as well as meeting weekly in small groups at Stewart Park. Going back to the connection online, Anne says she is able to feel when people are not connecting with her. I live in the woods, so I have pretty uh, sketchy internet at times. And so I was teaching this class, and then I thought, I tell you, I don't feel that anyone is there. But I wanted to just keep going, and sure enough, the internet had gotten funky and it had cut me off. And so it had cut the connection, but I, but it didn't show that. But I could feel it. I could feel they weren't there. And I think there's more connection available to us online than many of us acknowledge. Why do you think it's important for students to get involved in mindfulness activities? In all my evals, I always get, thank you for the Qigong. We're all thirsty for it, pandemic or not, even before the pandemic. Just um, connecting to ourselves, connecting to our bodies, and, then, uh, and perhaps connecting to something deeper than ourselves is kind of at the core of being human. My husband took a meditation class in college, and I think it, a lot of the principles stuck with him the rest of his life. And so I didn't discover Qigong until it's probably been five years now. How exciting that all of you can, step, can um, find something, whatever it may be, be it yoga or Tai Chi or Qigong or whatever it is, but some sort of practice where you um, go inward. Do you have any suggestions for students who say they either don't have enough time to actually get involved in mindfulness activities or they just don't know like how to actually do that in general? Yeah, if anyone had any interest and they wanted to contact me, I'd happily help them come up with a three minute or four minute routine. Like what could you do, right? Um, because it's certainly something uh, my teacher has a whole month long series called Seven Minutes of Magic. Right, so he um, he says, try this once a day for seven minutes. And now as well, being on a college on a campus, there's always gonna be some type of ambient noise or some type of distraction usually when, if you do want to like, try to focus on that. So how are you able to combat that noise to actually get into that zone and connect with your body and yourself? You just make that choice. And so students, I think, are very gifted at that, right? I see them in class and they've got like all this stuff going on behind them, right? And um, uh, and they, so I think you are ahead of the game in learning how to sort of filter out what you're not choosing to pay attention to. Uh, part of Qigong is really um, realizing you have a choice in where you put your attention. And we, every moment we have a choice where to put our attention but every moment we have a choice of what our intention is. And so even uh, something very simple. So you're feeling agitated, feel your feet on the floor, feel your crown of your head lifting up to the heavens. So you're rooted in the earth, connected to the heavens, and then take a slow, deep breath into your lower belly. And then a slow breath out. And another slow, deep breath into your lower belly 
an even slower deep breath out. Do you have anything else you'd like to go say about Qigong or just anything else you'd like to go express to the IC community about the importance of mindfulness? Mindfulness can be as simple as moment to moment, right? So you saw that right there, just one moment. You're wherever you are, you're in line for something. You're, I'm, I'm hearing stories that there's long lines to get food in the dining hall. So you can actually do that standing there in line. You can take a, you can, your choice can be to whip out your phone, which is probably not gonna help contribute to your mindfulness, unless you're opening up your mindfulness app. Or you can take that moment to really feel those feet, feel your, and have the intention to have your feet send roots deep into the earth. And lift that crown of your head and take that slow, deep breath into your lower belly. That's available to you every moment. I want to end on that last note, as there is some importance in taking that time. As college students, we all deal with exams or deadlines on top of the ongoing pandemic and our own faculty members getting cut, all of which can cause us stress and or anxiety. Taking that time to really breathe and connect with ourselves, ignoring the outside world, can really overcome not just this time we're going through, but any difficulty we may be facing. For WICB News, I'm Jordan Broking. You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Skylar Eagle. The Ithaca Police Department may be looking at some big changes coming up with the presentation of the Reimagining Public Safety Collaborative Draft Report. Ithaca is coming closer to a new outlook on public safety, which has been met with both optimism and criticism. Next week, we'll be hearing thoughts and more from members of the community about this proposal and exploring its future, so stay tuned. This week, though, we'll be hearing something new. On Tuesday, WICB News will proudly present our new bi-weekly long-form interview show on cultural events and stories and the writers behind them. Each episode will have WICB's Jess Stresch dive deep into a writer or journalist's work and how they got there. Here's a preview for the first episode. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the brand new WICB radio show about this. On the show, I'll be sitting down and speaking with writers, journalists, and experts about cultural events and stories. It's really just an excuse to talk to people I admire or work I'd love to know more about. A little about myself, my name is Jessica Dresch and I'm the host of the show. I'm a senior in the college and taking classes virtually, so yes, I'm in my bedroom right now. With the ongoing pandemic, I miss the serendipitous meetings with people or talking until 2 a.m. in my best friend's kitchen. As one of my politics professors says, you have some great conversations and then you die. So let's have some great conversations. Our first episode, I will sit down with writer Anna Karina Zatarain, who recently had a piece published in The New Yorker this past summer. She'll speak about Mexican mothers searching for their missing sons due to cartel violence. I'm really excited about this show and I hope you like it. Okay, so hi. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show. It's not live. (laughs) but I'm trying to make it uh, feel as live as possible. So yeah, do you want to just introduce yourself, a little background? Yeah, of course. My name's um, Anna Karina Zatarain. Uh, I am a writer and journalist based in Mexico City. And I actually went to school for architecture, not writing or journalism, but I kind of started to write right after school, mostly about architecture, and then started stepping into other things. 
especially things related to Mexico and my home state of Sinaloa. So we're going to be discussing your piece that you wrote in the New Yorker uh, this past August, I think it was published. So do you want to just talk about how you uh, decided to write about this topic? Yeah. Um, So actually, about four months before I started working on that piece, I was commissioned by BuzzFeed Reader to review um, the Netflix series Narcos which had just started its Mexico season. Before that, they had done, um, I believe, three seasons on Colombia. So I watched the show. It started um, right on the outskirts of my hometown, Culiacán. And my whole idea of the show was like, it's really interesting how in America, narcos and narco violence are always depicted like from their point of view and from authorities' point of view, like police against criminals, but nothing is shown about like the way society is affected by these sort of issues. So my review was kind of centered on that. And as I started researching, you know, different um, social repercussions of narco violence, obviously disappearances is a big one. And I came across the story of Mirna Medina and the group she founded, Las Raceras del Fuerte, um, which is in a town about three hours away from my hometown, Culiacán. So I wrote about them in that piece, um, just mentioning them. I didn't interview her or anything. And once it came out, a friend told me like, that sounds like a story on its own. So I pitched it um, to a different publication at first that um, in the end, it didn't work out there. But that's when I went to Los Mochis to meet with the women. So I'll ask you in a little bit to give a recap of your article, but before, can you just explain the term to disappear someone? In the BuzzFeed article, actually, there's a part where I say like, in English, the word disappeared is a verb. Um, In Spanish, it's a noun, like the disappeared, los desaparecidos. It refers to people. A desaparecido is a person who has been disappeared. Um, Yeah, a person who's just gone missing from one day to the next. And in Mexico, as of October last year, I believe, there's 77,000 cases, reported cases of desaparecidos or disappeared persons. Can you give a recap for those who haven't read the article from the beginning to going to Los Mokis and meeting the search group and Mirna? Um, Yeah, so basically when I decided to write this, I flew home to my parents' house in Culiacán. I texted Mirna. Um, I'd already been in contact with her through Facebook and she was very open from the start. Like, yes, of course, I'd love to meet. So I flew home and I texted her like, when can we meet? And it was probably like a week of just no answers or like one word answers and then no answers. She was very, very hard to get a hold of. Um, Finally, one day she told me like, next Monday, I'll see you at 10 a.m. So I went to those mochis, got there at 10 a.m. And Mirna was not answering her phone. Um, She, I later found out had gone on a search, had kind of forgotten about our meeting, I guess. So 
yeah, I just hung around outside of her office for a while. And by the time she came back, it was quite late. I hadn't planned on staying the night, but Mirna's, she's a lovely person. She's the sort of person that if you're with her in person, her entire attention is on you, which kind of explains why her attention was never on me through the phone. Um, mm. But so, yeah, she told me like, no, you can't leave. Um, you can stay the night, stay the night at my house. She really insisted. And so I decided to stay the night. And then that night she got um, a tip, an anonymous phone call where um, telling her where some bodies may be buried, sort of like the general location where um, some burial pits were located. And she told me like, well, we're leaving tomorrow at 6 a.m. on a search. So you weren't planning that at all? Okay, I, w- I was reading your piece and I was wondering if you had expected that because that's a really big thing to be a part of. So what was going on in your mind when you were deciding if you were going to go? Well, honestly, she told me and she kind of saw that I guess I looked a little bit afraid or nervous. And she was like, don't worry, we don't find anything nine times out of 10. Like, it's just maybe you maybe you would like to see how we work. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. So they're not gonna find anything and I'm just gonna see how they work and that's actually great for my piece. So then the next morning we headed out on the search at 6 a.m. It was a couple of hours away from the city and they started searching soon enough. We split up into two groups. I was in one group where a woman received a text from the other group saying they had found something. So we all ran to the other group and there was a pit that they had just um, uncovered with some bones, Um, which actually something that's curious about that is that usually I had done so much research about burial pits and um, human remains that had been uncovered and it was always bones in all the photos and all of the descriptions. So somehow it just never even occurred to me that of course, before there are bones, there's a body, you know, but so they kept digging and kept digging and kept digging next to that pit um, on both sides of that pit until um, I was asked to start digging. I hadn't started digging at that point. Um, I guess I was just kind of observing and then someone sort of said like, everyone should dig, we're tired. And I was like, okay, that's my cue. So I started digging and I was actually the one um, who hit a person who had been recently murdered. so yeah, that, at that point, I said like, oh, I felt something like I think there's um, a bag in here or something. And they all realized like, oh no, that's a recent body. So they started using brooms to sweep the, the dirt around it so as not to puncture it. Um, and yeah, by the end of the day, the women had uncovered 12 bodies. Five of them were recent. The rest of them were mostly bones. So this was like the burial pits you mentioned in the article where there's 
multiple locations of a number of buried bodies buried together that were disappeared. We were in a stretch of land that was right next to kind of like a, a small creek. And it seemed because there had been a lot of garbage that had been burned around there. And Mirna told me that usually after someone digs up a pit, puts a body and covers it, they'll burn garbage on top of it to, um, so that you know the smell isn't very obvious. Um, so when she saw that there was a lot of garbage buried around there, she was like, no, keep digging, keep digging, keep digging. Um, Mirna is really a natural born leader and um, the women really do look at her, look to her for direction um, in an almost kind of reverential manner. And she's very good at it. She's very unemotional when, when she's doing that sort of work, which is necessary um, because the rest of the women can get very emotional. Um, and yeah, so soon after the first body was uncovered, they reported it to the local police. The local police arrived, um, the forensics arrived because it's illegal to remove a body yourself. You know, anyone can search for bodies, but once you find a human body, you, you can't take it. Um, so yeah, then the forensics arrived and they were the ones who are tasked with taking the bodies, but the women kind of don't let them do anything until the body is fully uncovered so that they can just take it because they really don't like how the forensics treat the bodies. Um, they don't think they do a very thorough job um, and something that's very important to them when there's bones that are uncovered is that every single bone is taken. They don't wanna leave anything. And really the forensics for their job, they could just take one. Um, but, you know, because all they need is the DNA to be able to match it and tell someone like, we, you know, we found your, your family member. But for these women, it's very important to, you know, if you find someone's family member to give them the entirety of whatever remains. Um, so yeah, that, that day, this all happened in a period of, you know, 48 hours. Um, again, I had not expected that first that I would go on a search second, that we would find anything on the search and much less that we would find 12 bodies, which is, was until then, I'm not sure if that's still the case, but the most amount of bodies they had ever found. So the women were kind of referring to me as their lucky charm. Um, which, yeah, for me, it was, it was, it's strange looking back on it now because I don't remember feeling afraid. And for the most part during the search, I also wasn't very emotional. Um, I kind of kept an emotional distance. There's one point when I did kind of break down and cry. Um, but aside from that, I was, you know, very, removed in a way. Um, and yeah, it wasn't until several months after, while I was working on writing the piece that I started to kind of like feel it. Yeah, because it's one thing to go somewhere as a journalist with this wallop and 
observe something and then write about it. And then it's a whole nother thing to partake in such an intense experience like this. Those lines between your off time, regular hours, and then journalist working blur. And it's almost impossible to hold back certain emotions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so after that, I thought, you know, the piece is done. Um, Then I told an editor friend of mine about it when I was working on it. And he he just said, um, like, I'd love to read it. So I sent him the final draft which had still not been published or accepted by my initial editor. And so my friend read it and the next day he texted me and he told me like, I'm sorry, but I really think you should pull it from the small publication that had initially commissioned it. I know someone at the New Yorker. I, with your blessing, I'd love to share it with them. I can't promise anything, but you know, this really should get bigger exposure and bigger treatment. So I agreed. Um, And the New Yorker took about a month to deliberate and get back to me, which was the worst month of my life probably. Mm -hmm. Um, And when they finally emailed to tell me that they wanted to run the piece, they also mentioned like, we would like to extend it and make it, you know, longer add more scenes, have you report again, and send you over with a photographer to go on another search. Um, oh, so I, didn't, I didn't realize. It. Oh, it I think you do write, you go back, like you mm-hmm. return there. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so um, it was actually very serendipitous because the New Yorker accepted this by like the end of October and when I decided to go back, it was right on Day of the Dead. Um, And it was an interesting moment for me to go back because two weeks prior, there had been a really, um, two weeks prior in Culiacan, my hometown, there had been a standoff between sicarios, um, which are gunmen um, for the cartel and the military. a very, very big standoff, like the entire city was shut down for the day. And two weeks later after that, which is when I returned, it was Day of the Dead. So I decided to spend Day of the Dead with the women. Um, Mirna, the leader of the group has already found her son. So she has him, his remains are buried in the cemetery. And yeah, so that was the second time that I was able to spend some time with them. And it's another scene in in the piece. And then the day after that, we went on a second search, which I don't write about, Um, but that's where the photos uh, that ran with the piece came from. And actually that day they found two bodies. At that time, for some reason, on that search, I was very emotional and I was very scared, probably more scared than emotional. Um, I think the danger of that first search didn't really hit me until I thought about it much later. Um, 
So yeah, that was something I just didn't decide to include in the piece. Uh, but that's basically, oh, and then of course, um, the, it took me a while to write all of this, to edit. I was kind of going back and forth with my editor. We were set to publish mid-March um, and then COVID hit and all of the news coverage was about COVID for several months. Um, so my editor and I decided like, this story will be buried completely if, if we publish right now. So let's give it a minute. And several months later, um, things were still not much better regarding COVID. I think at first in March, everyone thought it was gonna be a couple of weeks or a month tops. Um, so that's when he told me like, well, I really think it's relevant to add to the story, like what, um, how they have dealt with the pandemic. And so I conducted all of those follow-up interviews through the phone. The women at first weren't searching and this caused a lot of distress for them emotionally. Um, it's really all they do, these women, uh, is search for their kids. They go on searches three times a week at least, more if there's any sort of tips or information that they get. And you would say the vast majority have not found their missing loved ones. Yeah. Yeah, there's over 100 active members in the group. And I would say probably 90% are mothers who are still searching for their children and another 10% are mothers who've already found their children and have decided to continue searching because of you know, the sort of sorority they've built with the women. And because as a kind of act of gratitude for the women who helped them search for their child before they had found them. The first episode of About This will premiere this Tuesday on your favorite podcast app and in the same feed as Ithaca Now. So be sure to subscribe to hear it and the show anywhere. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to take a listen to past stories, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full shows anywhere, anytime. Also subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from the manager of television and radio operations, Jeremy Menard, WICB station manager, Sam Ives, programming director, Lou Barron, and news social media coordinator, Gabrielle Topping. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by news director Jay Bradley with assistance from news managing director Celine Tutar and this week's correspondents Clay Davis, Christian Maitri, Jordan Broking, and Jessica Dresch. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dunbiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We'll be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Skylar Eagle, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.